0: Uh, we're, it's good to see everyone here tonight. We're in the study of a book of Revelation and uh, we kicked it off last week and we said sort of the broad title for all of this is Revelation, all of the nutrition, but yet none of the calories. The whole idea being that, that the book of Revelation was not intended to be sort of this fluff, overly caloric book. It was intended to be substantive. It was intended to be relevant. It was intended to be nutritious, and we need to read it that way. And if you remember last week, we talked about, you know, know, our topic last week was, you know, week number one was called calibration. And we looked at it, we said, you know, we got to get calibrated. And and the reason we got to get calibrated isn't so much because the book of Revelation is so beyond us, and so difficult, and so, you know, just like some multi-level, you know, calculus weird class and, and everything like that. It, it's not because of that, as much as it is that when we come into the book of Revelation, more often than not, we bring biases, and we bring some baggage, and we bring some preconceived ideas about what the book is. And not what the book really is. And when we do, we completely miss for those of you that remembered last week, you know, we, you know there is that lovely website. Uh, it's one of my, I, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, Raptureready.com, And uh, I think we were running at about about 170 today. And if you remember, you know, anything above, what was it, 160? You know, meant that you'll buckle your seatbelts. You know, so I don't know, it's, it's amazing something hadn't happened. And, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because that's kind of where the world is. This week we're going to talk just a little bit about symbolism. Again, just to kind of again, we got to introduce it a little bit more, and then if we're lucky, we're going to get through three verses. Now it picks up speed after that, and the reason we're going to do three verses is because that's about all we're going to have time for. Number one, but number two, if you don't get these the first three verses right, if you don't sort of bask in what the Holy Spirit is preserving for us today, just in those first three verses, you're going to mess it up. Everything else is not going to make sense. we got to get those first three verses right, and we're going to talk about that. So let's just talk real quick about symbolism. Now, when I talk about, you know, because we, you know, we talk about, remember last week we talked about the word apocalypse and apocalyptic writing and, and things like that, and so we probably ought to talk about symbolism real quick. We are not going to spend a lot of time on symbolism. Okay, remember I said we're going to do the nutritional part, we're not going to do the calories. There's plenty of books out there if you want to get all crazy about symbolism and and things like that. That's fine. If you've got the time, go ahead and do it Uh, instead. But what I want you to do is kind of get grounded around what the significance of symbolism is because we, we sort of lose sight of it just a little bit. And we lose sight of of how symbolism, in fact, what I'd really like for us to do is to sort of, you know, sort of kind of soften the term symbolism and instead use the word communication. Because what, when whenever we think of symbolism, again, this becomes one of those things where we allow certain baggage to jump into our head. And when we think of symbolism, we think of some really cryptic, mysterious code, and we think of you know some you know, some, you know code and some secret this that and the other. We think of you know Indiana Jones, or we think of you know National Treasure's Book of Secrets, or any of those others where there's this sort of the secret little symbols, and and they follow these little clues, and they're just so secretive and just so everything like that. And and there is something slightly to that. But instead, you know, the broader component and the broader rationale and the broader thing that's going on with what we would call symbolism is just simply communication. And one of the things I want you to do is stop and think about the symbolism that we use today. And we might not call it symbolism, but there are phrases, there are numbers, there are certain sort of cultural references that we will make as we talk to each other. That 1,000, 2,000 years from now, if somebody were to read, if someone were to observe how we talk to each other, they would go, man, I don't get it. What kind of symbolism is that? I don't understand that number. I, it doesn't really make sense to me. Why in a world, wholesome and pure, around how many yards for a first down? It's okay, for those of you, you don't have to be a huge foot 10. So then why is it? If we're talking about something, we talk about the whole, Not where did we come up with nine? I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it. Right? I, I, I'm sure it means something. But there's probably, I only saw one hand. And the only reason I'm not asking is because I really don't care. I mean, no offense. I mean, I, because because that's what we mean. Not when we say the whole nine yards, that means they got it all, right? Even though the only thing we really measure in yards much anymore are first downs. You see that? Kind of how that works a little bit? Maybe not. We'll keep moving on. But, uh, but Again, let's talk about those in just a second, about some of the things we use. But one of the things we'll see in symbolism is there's probably three areas of symbolism that rolls through the book of Revelation. Numbers being probably one of the most sort of pronounced. It's the one that gets all of the attention and everything else. You know, what do these numbers mean? A one, a two, a three, a five, a six, a ten, a thousand, everything like that. And, and oh, there's these, you know, there's communication in the numbers. Those numbers mean something. Uh, the other thing that we're going to see as we study, and, and we're not going to go deep into it, but we're going to sort of highlight it, is the book of Revelation is has wonderful, powerful references back to the Old Testament. Now, the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about this in a second, but, and then, then there's historical references, you know, the symbolisms that, you know, that mean something because of history, especially at the time. You know, ref, you know that, and so as we understand, and we're, that one we're not going to touch on near as much tonight as we will, as we see some of the references, and you begin to understand sort of the Roman government, and you begin to understand, you know, the the Caesars and the leadership through Rome, the emperors, the emperor worship, and things like that, and the historical references that are embodied in here. Again, this is you know on, under the auspices of, of symbolism or whatever you want to call it, help communicate a message. Now one of the things you've got to do is you've got to go back in time just a little bit and pretend that you are a Christian at the time of this writing. You are a first century Christian, you're reading this and you have to sort of get yourself in sort of the social milieu as writers would tell us and in some of our English classes and everything else what's going on at the time and how do things play out. And remember at the time and and, and again this is got to be careful how we say this. At the time, you know our level of education for the average Christian in America, even in this Bible class, some of you bring it down just a little bit, but the rest of you prop it up, is higher than what the typical Christian was back then. That's not to say that they were not dumb, that they were dumb. That's not that that's not what I'm saying at all. It's just that the educate that at the educational level of the typical Christian today is higher than that of a Christian back then. I mean, no shame in that; it's fine. I mean, and, and we understand that. Some of you understand that just looking at your own family, you know, where you may have succeeded, you may have gone farther in college, you may have graduated from high school or something. You may have, and you your a parent or a grandparent an aunt or an uncle didn't. Again, that, that that's not implying smarts. It's not implying intellect or anything like that. But because of that, and because the, sort of the written word was not necessarily as available back then as it might be for us today, in the first century, especially for those that potentially grew up in a Jewish faith, you know, what they had was their memories. And what they had, especially when we'll, we'll talk about the Old Testament in a second, but then there are certain things that they understood very, very well. Numbers were a big deal as part of their society. Let's talk about that just a little bit. We want to just talk real quick. Oh, oh, oops. Numbers. Numbers were a big deal back then. Now, when we talk about numbers and we talk about you know, the symbolic nature of numbers, that is very, very different than numerology, if you ever hear that. I mean, it's not really one of those words we use a lot. And a lot of times when you hear numerology, you, know, you tend to think of something that ties to the occult or something like that and sort of this manipulation of numbers to mean something and, and everything like that. That is very, very different than what we're talking about here. In my life, for instance, I have watched the numbers 9, 1, and 1 change in its meaning to me. When I was a kid, when I was growing up, you know, in the circle that I ran in, I don't know why, it's just one of those cultural things. The Porsche 911 was the car that we all wanted. I have no earthly idea why. I mean, I don't, I mean, you look back on it now, and it really was kind of an inferior engine, and but anyways, beside, that's beside the point. And so nine eleven. growing up, was one of these references that we used to describe something that was the ultimate. Okay, today, Let's see, we don't have any teenagers in here, but I'm sure some of you know if i'm not this is so I'm told a young man sees a, a a girl that he thinks is really good looking what does he call her young lady uh, you know yes, but what's he call her a ten or Act like you don't know. I see one of you looking at me right now. Like a dime, right, means a 10. Okay. Back when I was a kid, you know, growing up a kid, when I was, you know, in high school, they were a nine eleven. Because a nine eleven was our perfect car. And so if we saw a young lady that we thought was really, really beautiful, oh, that was a nine eleven. If it was if we played golf and you had a good round, it was a nine eleven. If you did well on a test, it was a 9/11. I mean, it might have been a 75, but it felt like a 9/11, and, and, that, and, that, and so culturally, that's where we were. And that's before really 911 was really in vogue that much. And I kind of date myself with that a little bit. Now that's back when you still called the operator if there was an emergency. Okay, I can remember my my oldest son back before we corrupted the minds of our youth with PowerPoint. Uh, you know, back when we made them actually turn to the song books, you know, to the right song and, and to the to the scripture passage and everything like that. My oldest son, as a little kid, as we would work with him, he got such a kick out of every time that we song sung the song, you know, number nine eleven. Nine one one, better call the cops. I don't know how many times I heard that. I mean it just you know and and so all of a sudden it changed. A nine, a one, and a one was nine one one. Now what do a nine and two ones mean to us? It, it means something very, very different, doesn't it? Okay, you know, as I was driving to Oklahoma this morning, you know, they had a moment of silence. I was listening to the news and things like that, and they you know had you know several moments of silence. Because 9:11. 9-11 Really doesn't mean a Porsche to us anymore, does it? Okay, and and if you can get your head around that for just a second, you can get your head around how powerful numbers were back then. How absolutely, how they meant something. One was a unit. Okay, we kind of understand that. Two was one plus one. It was this idea of strength. Three was an impressive number. Because to them, it it had references to the deity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Three meant something. It was very, very important. You know, three and a half. That was bad. Because that was half of seven. I mean, that, that wasn't good. Because seven is complete. Five is half of ten. That meant limited strength. Ten meant, you know, strength. You know, seven was perfection. Because it was three plus four. Four had connotations and references to the creation and the perfectness of it. Three, the deity. You take three plus four, you get seven. That's a perfect number. Seven mattered to them. To us, seven is just a number. I mean, we kind of understand seven days in a week and everything like that. But to them, seven was a perfect number. And it was an absolute insult to use the word to the number six because that was less than perfect I can remember uh, being I went over uh, to Estonia and uh, you know we flew over there and, and we were kind of it was just this neat kind of home and that had this kind of this this big it was almost like a big hole it looked like a basement but it was kind of dug down in there and that's back when you know during the Soviet occupation they, they had these houses. And what they would do is some of these houses would make these really deep basements and that's where they would have the meetings for those that were against communism and everything like that. And this is where they would have the meetings and they would plan you know, for the day that you know, the Soviet Union would eventually pull out. And Anyways, you know, wonderful historical reference. So we're down there, and we're basically—you know—it's a restaurant now, but it's—you're basically sort of—you know—there's two tables in it, it's one upstairs and one down here, and it's—you know—the—the the, the wife of the man that owns the house is fixing it. Anyway, she—you know—so we're eating dinner, and it was phenomenal food. I mean, it was a spread like nothing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was just good, and I was starving. And I'm just—I'm—I'm I'm not even looking up. I mean, I'm just shoveling it in. And she comes in. And she asks, "How is everything?" And the guy that I'm with, and so there's two of us from America, and then there's you know some you know, others from regional. So the, the one that we're with, kind of our host looks up and he goes, "Ah, it's not so bad." And I remember looking up, thinking, "Oh boy, you idiot!" I mean, I can't imagine what would happen at home <laughs> if you know. <laughs> You know, the, the times that we actually sit down as a family, and we sit down at a home-cooked meal, and, and my wife said, well, what do you guys think of it? And one of us looked up and said, oh, it's not so bad. I mean, I just, I mean, I just, I just shut her to think. And I just thought, oh, my word, she's going to start to cry. And I, and then, and she just kind of, and she did. And I thought, oh, Jim, you got to recover from this. And so I said, oh, no, it's awesome. It's awesome. And the guy told me to shut up. No, 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 no. You tell her it's really, really good. No, no, no. And after she left, what he explained to me was, awesome was not a compliment. But to say, that's not so bad. That was the ultimate compliment you could pay somebody in the Estonian culture that makes a meal for you. Because what you're saying is, that was a phenomenal meal, but I respect you enough to keep you humble. Culturally speaking, that was the highest compliment that they could pay. And I bring that up as we talk because to us sometimes some of these things, you know, they they may not matter to us in terms of numbers. They may just be some math on a page. But at the time, not only did the numbers mean something, but the numbers times another number, you know, seven times a thousand. that, That was a big deal. A million. Remember when you thought a million was a big number? Until you realize that there was this thing called a billion. Remember when a megabyte was huge? Then a gigabyte got bigger, and then terabytes and everything like that. A million back then—that that was huge. I mean, that, you just oh, I mean that's as big as they could comprehend. Numbers matter. Let's keep going. Uh, the second thing—the Old Testament mattered. Now remember, you know, one of the things that was you know absolutely beautiful back then, you know, especially to those that kind of grew up. In the, uh, maybe came out of the, the, the Jewish faith, uh, was the fact that they understood, as Christians, their Old Testament remarkably well. And they understood it in a way that was very, very different than what it would be to us. You know, we get excited when a kid can remember the judges, or we can re- you know when a kid can remember you know this play, you know the plagues and, and the creation and you know whatever the story is, we get kind of excited about the, the facts. Let me ask this what legal relevance is the Declaration of Independence in two thousand and thirteen? From a legal perspective, what is the relevance of the Declaration of Independence? Absolutely nothing. The Declaration of of Independence has absolutely no legal bearing, no legal standing, no legal significance in any of our laws today. Having said that, why... Do we preserve it? It's historically significant. What else? It's a foundation. What else? It means something, doesn't it? I mean, there's something. I mean, you cannot read the Declaration of Independence and not be moved by it. If you are, then go somewhere else. I mean, it's just to read that. And to understand what was happening and everything like that. Okay, now you get some sense of the Old Testament relative to people in the first century, especially those. And so, you know, throughout the entire book of Revelation, there are references. And it's not the same way that we read some of the other references in, in the New Testament. You know, where we'll open it up and it will be a, you know, word for word parroting back of what was written back in the Psalms or in the Proverbs or something that somebody said. But we'll see references. And those references help communicate something. All right, let's keep going. Uh, history, we'll blow through that. Okay, here we go. Open up your book. The first three verses. Your memory assignment are the three ver- these three verses. Remember I told you you didn't have to do too much memory, but I want you to learn and memorize the first three verses. They are the most important. I don't want to say the most important, but if you don't get sort of solid around the first three verses, you really are going to have a hard time in the book of Revelation because there is so much embodied in these first three verses. There is so much of the stage that is set for the entire book here in these first three verses that, like I said, if you get it wrong, you're going to have a problem. Because, like I said, there's just tons of stuff. There's four things I want us to look at tonight. I mean, there's actually, we we could probably do a dozen almost. But let's just look at four things real quick. First one is, that very first line, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just stop right there. The revelation of Jesus of Jesus Christ. One of the things that always that I find is to be a crying shame is whenever we study Jesus, I say whenever, most of the time, maybe not where you attend, churches I've heard of. Ninety-nine percent of the time, when it's a lesson about Christ, and it's a lesson about his nature and the totality of who he is, for some reason They never get to the book of Revelation, and I've never really understood that. They'll go back to the Old Testament and they'll look at you know, passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and things like that. They will go all throughout the Gospels. They will go to the you know, New Testament passages where the New Testament writers in their epistles talk about Christ and the role of Christ and all that he's done. They'll go to the book of Hebrews and they'll talk about just how great, how much greater he is than the prophets and the angels and, and those that came before him, Moses and everyone else. But they never get to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, in its first verse, announces itself as the revelation of Jesus Christ, to reveal Christ. And, and it becomes so very, very important because like I said, what we want to talk about is we want to talk about, it's the revelation of the apocalypse. It's the revelation of Armageddon. It's the revelation of the beast. It's the revelation. No, 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 no. What does God say it is? What words did the Holy Spirit ensure that in 2013 get translated into our Bibles? It is the revelation of the Son of God. Because one of the things that you will see throughout there, and that is a theme. Oh, yeah, there's beasts and there's dragons and everything like that. And that's backdrop, folks. For the real message, which is this is the revelation of the Son of God. Through every step of the way. As the one and only one capable of opening a seal. As the one and only one capable of of dealing with this and dealing with sin and dealing with the beast and dealing with all of that once and forever, for all of eternity. As the one who would be bowed to by all of the living creatures, by those that are holy, by those that are angels, by those that sort of represent all of humanity. It's the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Let's talk about time for just a second, because that's the second thing. And we, talked, we touched on this a little bit. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Because we got to get our head around this. Because we've got to understand that there was a reason for the book of Revelation. And there was a relevance to it at the time of its writing that it was not intended to be this, this mystical footprint or this mystical treasure map for those 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later. Let me ask this. How long before Jesus returns? I, I mean, we don't know. Okay, so the, isn't that cool? You know, so there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, there's a right answer, but none of us know it anyway, so it's not like I can say, nope, you're wrong, you're right, or anything like that. How many of you think Close your eyes. First of all, close your eyes. Because we don't want to be embarrassed by, you know, I don't want people to see my hand and everything like that. But I want you, seriously, close your eyes right now. Those of you that hadn't already closed your eyes anyways. Raise your hand. If you think genuinely right or wrong, we won't, I mean, we'll know, but if you think that Jesus will come in your lifetime. Okay? Okay? Raise your hand if you think that Christ will come in the lifetime of your grandkids or your great-grandkids. So two generations, three generations. Raise your hand if you think it'll be another thousand years. There's no right or wrong here, folks. Raise your hand if you think it could be another 20,000 years. Okay, open your eyes. Really, open your eyes. Sometime between now, 20,000, 30,000 years from now, I don't know when. It could be tomorrow. But we certainly have to allow for the fact that it may be a very, very long time before Christ returns. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We turn to this a lot. And this is one of those chronological references, but look at how it's used. It's used to describe the nature of God. Okay, It is not used to be some literal reference to time, except for the fact that what the writer is trying to say is the very nature of God is so unbound by time. He is so unconstrained by time and what we would consider to be chronology and everything like that, that to him, a thousand years and a day are one and the same. And the whole and that reference to time is a very specific or again that that's used in this very specific context about the nature of God and how our God is unbound by time. Now, turn over to the book of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter eight. I want you to kind of get excited about this. Eight. I'll get excited if I could find it without the pages sticking together. Okay, in Daniel chapter 8, there's a vision. And he talks about their kind of a vision. You know, he begins there in verse, you know, chapter 8, you know, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which previously appeared to me. Okay, that's important. Because... That means, you know, so so when we look at Daniel chapter eight, verse one, we says in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, this is somewhere in the year 55 B.C. 550 B.C. Give or take a year or two, okay, 550. Very very important. Okay, now skip ahead. And so here's, so we're going to talk about a vision. So Daniel is seeing this in 550 B.C. Now, look, skip down to verse 26. As Daniel sort of talks about this vision, one of the things that is specifically said to Daniel about this vision, though, and the vision of the evenings and the morning, which has been told to me is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So, what Daniel was asked to keep it secret? Why? And, and what I, I, let's don't get hung up on that part. Get hung up on the part because on the reference to many days in the future. Now we'll get into this a little bit more, but I got to get quick because some of you guys got a show to go to. The fulfillment of that vision occurred roughly 150 B.C. Let's do the math here. 550 B.C. minus 150 B.C. is how many years? What? 400? It's okay. Jump right out there, even in the new math. You know, it's still 400. 550 minus 150 is 400. What is the reference made to that period of time, though? Many days in the future, in the distant future. All right, what year is it? 2013, well done. Let's just use easy math so that people don't have to, you know, borrow and carry and everything like that. Let's just say that the book of Revelation was written in 100 AD. How many years is that? Let's just round up and call it 2000, okay? Okay. You see the difference here all of a sudden? 400 years was referenced chronologically as many days in the future. But look at verse 1. John, from God, as preserved by the Holy Spirit, says to show him things which must soon take place. If 400 years is many days in the future, 2,000 years is beyond 400 years, the book of Revelation opens up with that which must soon take place. I'm no math wizard. I can hang in there i got to think that's a lot less than 400 years. And I bring that up because the book of, Revel- of Revelation was written for and intended much the same way when Paul wrote the Corinthians and he wrote the Philippians. When, you know, when these epistles were written from I, Paul, you know, an apostle, to the church at Galatia and the saints, it was a very specific message. Now, we get the benefit of that, but there were some specifics to that. And so he says to, you know, first that which must take place soon. Now let's keep going ahead. All right, now let's look at him. We testified before God, and, and, and you got to tie now to verse 3. Blessed, okay, okay, because again, this is why it's so important to get to this, because we want to turn this into some mystical book that we read for this mysterious returning of Christ, even though Jesus himself said, no one can figure that out but the Father. Apparently that wasn't good enough. So let's just do these first three verses and kind of get everybody's head around it. Blessed is he who reads those who hear. That's important because back then you had those that could read and those that got the word of God from hearing. Okay, those who read, those who hear, the words of this prophecy, and what? Heed the things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. The book of Revelation was written with a very specific purpose. Not only did it have a purpose that was sort of, you know, at that specific time. Again, here in just three verses, two times we see it, you know, that things which are about to happen, things which are near, you know, things that, you know, know, the time is near, things that must take place soon. And we're going to see that time and time again in this book of Revelation so that all of a sudden the window of its relevance, it still exists for us. Don't get me wrong. But it's not this roadmap that we and this treasure map that we figure out 2000 years later. It was written for a specific purpose. And not only was it written for a specific purpose, but what does it say? Blessed are those that do what? That heed it. Why is that so very important? Because I get really, really tired of those Revelation critics that talk about it as a book that can't be understood. A book that is so far out there that... Now, it may... It's relevance to us 2,000 years later may be a little bit more of a struggle. But to those seven churches in Asia and the people that those seven churches and the saints there would come in contact with, you know, you tell people, then you tell... And for those people at the time, it was relevant not just for the time period, but it was relevant because the Bible actually said, blessed are those who heed these words... Now, folks, God has never, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, ever been ambiguous about his expectations. He has never been ambiguous about his commandments. He has never been ambiguous about his desires. He has never held somebody up and said, I will judge you for a standard that you could never understand. He has never once said, you know what? Mm, I kind of tricked you. Let's see if you can figure it out. Obedience. Consecration. You know, holiness. Never, from the beginning of time until now and on into eternity, has never been an Easter egg hunt. Has never been a mystery. You know, we talk about the mysteries, but in terms of God's expectation for us, God has never made that a mystery. And so for God to provide, and there is a blessing on those who hear, those who read, and those who heed, there's got to be some ability to comprehend. And especially for those at the time. Now we are the blessings, just you know, we are blessed just like everybody that is blessed by the Word of God. But it was written with a very specific purpose for specific reasons. And, and, and if you understand, like I said, these three verses, we'll get to the fourth thing next week, real quick. But, you know, next week, and then we'll kind of move. But if you understand that it was relevant to those that re- read it at the time, it wasn't just sort of, you know, it, you know that, and they did not treat it as the 66th book of the Bible that no one really talks about because no one can really understand. Ah, all of a sudden, now it means something. And it means something more. And, it, and if you start to read it, and then you start looking at the powerful ways, and we talk about the symbolism. Let's go back to that for just a second, and you begin to sort of really unlock the symbolism. Not for the purpose of trying to, you know, figure out some code about who's the beast and this, that, and the other, and the mark of the beast, and you know, and so we can run around fearing six, six, and six to get, Not because of that, but you just look at the powerful way that God was able to provide comfort. And encouragement and preparation for, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. And the way that he was able to communicate that. Not by, you know, talking about, and it could not be through some description of battles and Armageddon. No, through the revelation of Christ. And to do that, he communicated with numbers that meant something to the people. He communicated with Old Testament references that had deep, meaning to people. He communicated it through, you know, references, you know, historically to emperors and and sort of Roman rule. It meant something to people. And we get around that and all of a sudden you begin to ref. I hope anyways, if not, well then you've only got, I don't know, 10 more weeks or 13 more weeks to deal with me. Um, So, anyways... Anyway, so let's just kind of pause there, and we'll kind of go on next week. But, uh, you know, so just kind of keep in mind, and, and again, you know, and what I'm trying to help you do is sort of read Revelation as a Christian would have read it back then. Put yourself into their place around numbers, around Old Testament references, around figurative language. And remember, what was John's charge last week? We talked about it last week. Write the things, what? The things you hear? No. Did he say, write about the things that you read? No. What was John told to do? John, write an account of the things that you see. And in beautiful descriptive terms, John's going to do it. And what John saw was phenomenal. And it had phenomenal meaning to those back then. And it'll have phenomenal meaning if you let it 2,000 years later. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, dear God, as the one who exists without time, without beginning, without end, God, we give you honor and praise. God, we thank you for your entire word. And God, we appreciate the work that the Holy Spirit has done to preserve it for us. And God, our regret is that there are passages and there are books that we probably don't read as often as we should. And God, we endeavor to do so during this study. God, may the beauty of your word, may the beauty of the revealed Christ jump out of the pages and into our hearts. Thank you, God. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.